Do you walk on a sidewalk or a pavement? Eat fries or chips? The differences between American and British English can seem trivial at times, but they point to a deeper debate around language and identity that has been fought in the literary sphere as well as in everyday life. What differentiates American writers from their English literary counterparts? And even looking within America rather than across the Atlantic, since America is a diverse and huge nation comprising many different forms of speech, how can one writer ever hope to represent the American language or a quintessential American self? In this podcast, Molly Becker of the University of Cambridge charts how the American Midwest ended up as the pin at the centre of this complex map of language and identity. This region was memorably treated by writers such as Sinclair Lewis, whose novels of Midwestern small-town life, such as his 1920s Main Street, came not unproblematically to be seen as representative of the nation in the mainstream. This podcast is brought to you by the Department of English Studies at Durham University. It was recorded after a series of public late summer lectures in 2019. So in 1882, Mark Twain wrote a short sketch called Concerning the American Language about his encounter on a train with an English visitor to America. The Englishman, intending to compliment Twain, tells him that Americans in general did not speak the English language as correctly as Twain did. Twain, however, does not see this as a compliment. He informs his traveling companion that the language he speaks is not in fact English, but American. He proceeds to baffle the Englishman by listing off examples of how the two languages diverge, from word choice to pronunciation, concluding that if he wanted to, he could pile up differences here until I, until I not only convinced you that English and American are separate languages, but that when I speak my native tongue in its utmost purity, an Englishman can't understand me at all. The Englishman replies that it is about all he can do to understand Twain now, and this Twain does take as a compliment, putting the two travelers on the pleasantest terms. Although British English and American English are obviously not, and have never been mutually unintelligible, Twain was satirizing a real concern from the mid to late 19th century. That the English spoken in America and in Britain could be so different as to cause this type of concern is something that both countries' critics and literary figures from a century earlier, at the time of the United States' founding, would not have believed possible. As Americans began to separate themselves from the United Kingdom upon gaining their independence, intellectuals and writers worried about whether or not the new country would be able to establish its own literary tradition separate from and equal to those of Britain and other European countries. There is scarcely a one which contributes to the wealth of an author that is found here in veins as rich as in Europe. There are no annals for the historian, no follies beyond the most vulgar and commonplace for the satirist, no manners for the dramatist, no obscure fictions for the writers of romance, no gross and hearty offenses against decorum for the moralist, nor any of the rich artificial luxuries of poetry. The weakest hand can extract a spark from a flint, but it would baffle the strength of a giant to attempt kindling a flame with a pudding stone, complained one of the United States' early prominent authors, James Fenimore Cooper. 
Although Cooper, who began his literary career by fashioning his writing on the model of Sir Walter Scott's European romances, might have simply been expressing personal frustration with his unsuccessful first novel, rather than an unbiased, unassailable truth. He was not alone in his concern about whether or not American literature could become internationally relevant. In a cutting takedown of American culture published in 1820, Sidney Smith, one of the founders of the Edinburgh Review, declared in that journal that in the 30 or 40 years of their independence, Americans have done absolutely nothing for the sciences, for the arts, for literature, or even for the statesmanlike studies of politics or political economy. In the four quarters of the globe, who reads an American book or goes to an American play? An 1815 article in the North American Review put this idea that the United States was not producing original, worthy literature in terms of language, fearing that because the language in which, in which American fiction was written was from a country totally unlike our own, that the nation's literature might forever be inferior to the literature of European authors writing in their own language. How tame will his language sound, asked the author, who would describe Niagara in language fitted for the falls at London Bridge, or attempt the majesty of the Mississippi in that which was made for the Thames. Without a distinctly American language, Americans worried that their national literature would not be able to distinguish itself from that of Britain and other English-speaking areas. But confirmation that American literature had in fact managed to differentiate itself from British English as Twain demonstrates to his traveling companion, and that this distinctly American literature, American form of English, had become the bedrock for a rich American literary tradition, came in 1930, when Sinclair Lewis became the first American author to be awarded the Nobel Prize in Literature. By this time, the United States had already been producing impactful, internationally read literature for years. The rumored second choice for the 1930 prize had been another American author, Theodore Dreiser, revealing a depth to American literary ranks that it had been built up over decades of innovative American writing. An American author's recognition on this prestigious international stage, however, was valuable proof that American literature had ceased to be a minor province of British literature and had instead achieved the status of a national literary tradition in and of itself. In this lecture, I will look at how a Midwestern author, such as Sinclair Lewis, came to be chosen as the representative of this American literary tradition, exploring how the connection between the Midwest and the United States, which Lewis's win demonstrated, affects perceptions of the region and its literature. To do so, I will focus on the way Midwestern authors Lewis, Zona Gale, and Ruth Suckow depict the region spatially in their fiction focusing particularly on how this relates to if and how they use distinctly regional language in their writing. As the international figurehead for this newly acknowledged American literary tradition, Lewis was a fitting choice, as he frequently emphasized his novel's distinctly American characteristics. His first novel, Main Street, published in 1920, does this especially explicitly. The first sentence of the prologue states, this is America, a town of a few thousand in a region of wheat and corn and dairies and little groves. 
This opening immediately establishes the setting of the novel, which at face value is simply one small town in Minnesota, as a microcosm of, of the country as a whole, boldly declaring itself nationally representative from the first line. Lewis continues on a similarly grand scale throughout the rest of the prologue by giving a brief history of cultural, cu culture in general, suggesting that the main street of the novel and all of the many main streets around the country are the climax of civilization, concluding that this Ford car might stand in front of the Ponton store, Hannibal invaded Rome, and Erasmus wrote in the Oxford cloisters. This lofty statement, much like the rest of the novel, is clearly satirical. Far from believing small-town Main Street culture is the culmination of human civilization, Lewis thought that small-town life, such as the one he represents in his novel, was dull and stultifying. Yet he did see this Main Street culture as, re as representative of American culture in general, and prepares readers to project his small-town story onto the country as a whole through the many shifts in scale he takes his readers through in this first sentence. In this line, Lewis rapidly adjusts readers' frame of reference from the entire country, this is America, to one small town of only a few thousand people, before finishing somewhere in between with a description of the region where the town is located. These scalar shifts are indicative of Lewis's aim to embody American culture in one small, insular environment, and they prepare readers to map the lives and attitudes of the characters in his stories onto all Americans. The fact that Lewis ends his novel's opening line on a description in which the story is set also demonstrates an important quality of his fiction. In the America Lewis's novel depicts, American culture is encapsulated in a small town in a region of wheat and corn and dairies and little groves, the American Midwest. Although Lewis won the Nobel Prize as a representatively American author, his fiction is strongly associated with the Midwest, his home region, and the area where his, where his most successful novels are set. Capping a period of, in, of abundant Midwestern literary production and linguistic experimentation in the first decades of the 20th century, during which Midwestern authors such as Lewis were consistently appearing on national bestseller lists, Lewis's Nobel Prize win established the small town Midwestern American culture his novels depicted as nationally representative. It established the colorful language Lewis used in his novels as nationally representative as well. Lewis's novels are characterized by his abundant use of slang, so much so that Edith Wharton, an American Pulitzer Prize winning author and the person to whom Lewis dedicated his second novel, Babbitt, suggested in a letter to Lewis that in his next book he should use slang and dialogue more sparingly, adding that she believes the real art in this respect is to use just enough to color your, your dialogue, not so much that in a few years it will be incomprehensible. Critic Ronald Weber agrees with Wharton's analysis, commenting, Lewis's delight in his ability to mimic American talk always seems on the verge of overwhelming the thin line of his story. Wharton and Weber might be correct in their assertions that the Midwestern slang Lewis peppers his novels with is overpowering in its sheer volume. A letter that George Babbitt dictates to be sent out to potential clients, for example, reads, Say, old man, 
I just want to know, can I do you a whale of a favor? Honest, no kidding. I know you're interested in getting a house. Not merely a place where you hang up the old bonnet, but a love nest for the wife and kitties. Say, did you ever stop to think that we're here to save you trouble? That's how we make a living. Folks don't pay us for our lovely beauty. Yet this distinctive slang inundated language is one of the primary reasons Lewis won the Nobel Prize. In their statement announcing Lewis's selection for the award, the Nobel Prize Committee noted that Lewis had been chosen in large part because of the fact that he wrote the new language, American, as one of the representatives of 120 million souls. By drawing particular attention to Lewis's use of language, the committee suggests with their choice that not only was there now an American literature separate from British literature, but that there was an American language distinct from British English, and that the seat of this American language was the American Middle West. While Lewis's small Midwestern towns and cities became representative of America in the 1920s, the evolution of, a mid of Midwestern speech from regionally distinctive to nationally representative was already taking place in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. In the decades leading up to Lewis's 1930 Nobel Prize, the idea of an American national language was a prominent issue in public discourse. From the time of the country's independence from Great Britain, the idea of a distinct American language carried strong political and cultural connotations. After the Revolutionary War, language, and the idea of an American national language distinct from British English, became a rallying point for American writers, with the phrase American English and American language appearing for the first time during the 1780s. This was helped along by the fact that over the following decades, the new landscapes and experiences American settlers encountered in the new country necessitated the coining of new terms and phrases, which often came into American speech from origin points in the area which at the time was considered the West, the modern-day Midwest. As early as the 1850s, Walt Whitman claimed that the Western states have terms of their own, and H.L. Mencken, a 20th century cultural leader and amateur expert on the American language, noted many new words and phrases, such as to pull up stakes, enter a claim, and to pan out, that had come into what he called American as a result of westward settlement and pioneer living. As the number of non-English speaking immigrants making their way to American shores increased during the decades around the turn of the 20th century, however, some Americans began to worry that their American language was being contaminated through the introduction of foreign words and phrases. By 1910, more than one in seven Americans was foreign-born. And the question of how to assimilate a large number of immigrants, many of whom were not native English speakers, was becoming increasingly urgent. In this environment, having a national language that the entire country spoke and that could be seen as a common element linking American citizens together, became a particularly attractive and pervasive idea, and the evolution of the American language was being closely watched. This political emphasis on one American language is evident in the commentary Indiana author Edward, Edward Eggleston attaches to his 1871 novel, The Hoosier Schoolmaster. 
one of the first novels from the Midwest to become nationally popular. The story of Eggleston's first novel is one of savvy opportunism. Eggleston began writing his novel based loosely on his own childhood in Indiana and on his brother's experience as a small-town teacher an attempt, in an attempt to revitalize Hearth and Home magazine, a weekly publication he had turned his hand to after an earlier career as a minister and public speaker. The first episode of the serial attracted more attention than Eggleston anticipated, triggering an uptick in subscriptions, and so he expanded the story's length from a planned three installments to a novel-length 14. Upon subsequent publication of the book in serial form, Eggleston inserted a preface attributing grander regional motivations to his novel that it seems he might have originally intended, declaring that his novel was born of a desire to show the validity of Midwestern fiction, which at the time was underrepresented in favor of literary production from New England. Whether or not this was Eggleston's initial intention, The Hoosier Schoolmaster, which follows a fairly standard melodramatic plotline, is notable primarily for Eggleston's detailed portrayal of rural Midwestern life, and particularly for accurately recording local dialect. He kept lists of Indiana phrases, Hoosierisms, that he heard in his day-to-day -day life and deployed them freely in his novel, making liberal use of footnotes to explain the peculiarities of the regional language to his national readers. As the concept of an American language began to, began to gain national value, however, Eggleston subtly adjusted his representation of his novel's language from regionally to nationally representative. The preface to an 1892 revised version of The Hoosier Schoolmaster draws special attention to the many international translations of the book, emphasizing the difficulty Eggleston imagines foreign translators would have had and coming up with translations of the novel's regional speech. It may be imagined that the translator found it no easy task to get equivalents in French for expressions in a dialect new and strange, he says of one translation, adding later, what are the equivalents in high German for right smart and dog on, I cannot imagine. By contrasting the novel's dialect with other languages besides English, Eggleston makes the form of English found in his novel appear less regional and more national, with all Americans able to understand the nuances of the text more fully than French readers could, for example. In one of the early footnotes added to this revised edition, he makes this point explicitly, telling his readers, "'Nuff said is more than enough said for the French translator, who takes it apparently for a sort of barbarous negative and renders it, I don't like to speak to him, I need hardly explain to any American reader that enough said implies the ending of all discussion by the acceptance of the proposition or challenge. Instead of highlighting the regional aspect of his language, as he had when the novel was first published, Eggleston focuses on the fact that all Americans can understand his novel's language, conforming to current American language politics by emphasizing the universality of American English in the United States. The fact that the distinctive language that Eggleston was emphasizing originated in the Midwest demonstrates the conflation between Midwestern regional language and American general language that was taking place in these decades. It is generally the pattern around the world that national linguistic standards 
will emerge from the speech found in the economic and cultural centers of a nation, which, in the United States, would make the Northeast, which contains the economic and cultural centers of New York and Boston, as well as most of the country's elite educational institutions, the clear linguistic standard bearer. As fear of immigrant contamination of American culture and language was on the rise in the early 1900s, though, Boston and New York began to represent the type of contamination that many Americans feared. By 1910, 75% of the population of the two cities was comprised of immigrants or the children of immigrants, pushing those in search of an unsullied America to focus more attention on regions that were perceived as ethnically homogenous and pure. A conversation Indiana author Booth Tarkington recalls with an older Indianapolis judge in his 1828 memoir demonstrates that the Midwest, in particular, was seen as less contaminated by foreign immigrants, which by extension enabled its speech to remain the most purely American. Commenting on the differences between Indianapolis and larger urban centers like New York and Chicago, the judge conflates immigrant status, race, and language, observing, compared to New York and Chicago, this is still an all-pure American town. In a New York theater between the acts, you'll hear everybody speaking our language, but you wonder why they do. Between the acts in a theater here, you aren't surprised when they talk American because they still generally look that way. By looking to the Midwest for linguistic standards, many Americans found the sense of, found the sense of homogeneity, both in population and in language, that they were seeking. Therefore, when Eggleston makes the connection between Midwestern regional dialect in American language in general, using foreign languages as a foil to facilitate this connection. He anticipates the elision between Midwestern regional language and general American language, and thus Midwestern culture and American culture, that would become increasingly apparent in the upcoming years. By the time Lewis won his Nobel Prize, the relationship between the Midwest and the United States as a whole had become even more pronounced and it contributed strongly to Midwestern fiction's popularity during the early 20th century. Eggleston clearly took advantage of this regional popularity when initially marketing the Hoosier schoolmaster. And Lewis himself demonstrated the cultural cachet inherent in linking oneself in one's language to the region when he explained the lingering influence of his Midwestern roots by saying that, to him forever, 10 miles will not be a distance in the mathematical tables, but slightly more than the distance from Sock Center to Melrose. To me, forever, though I should live to be 90, the direction west will have nothing in particular to do with California or the Rockies. It will be that direction, which is to the left, toward Hoboken Hill, if you face the house of Dr. E. J. Lewis. This association between regional landmarks and language reinforces the connection Lewis's language has to his regional background, something that was to his advantage at a time when Midwestern American English was being so highly valued. But in addition to linking language with locality, this quote also reveals the difficulty inherent in defining a region with an identity so strongly tied to the national identity. When de describing the type of language that his Midwestern childhood has left him with, Lewis tellingly uses distance and directions to, as his examples. 
his use of internally instead of externally based descriptors to identify landmarks and geographical features of the region pick up on the Midwest's nebulous relationship to other, more defined areas of the country, something that reflects the general perception of the Midwest. Geographically and linguistically, the Midwest has proven itself a difficult region to define. Literary critic David Marion Holman argues that every American has a commonly held perception of region, and that this idea of region and regional identities influences the way different Americans view national history and mythology. Though the concept of the United States as being composed of various regions might be a shared one, what exactly constitutes each region, and where precisely the borders of each separate region should be placed on a map, is open to interpretation. This is especially true in the case of the Midwest. Although the sense that the continental United States has had, at each stage of its history, identifiable regions, and, specifically, an identifiable sociocultural and linguistic middle region, has been a formative, continuously influential aspect of American popular imagination, as Linguist Best Simon argues. Where the borders of that region lie, and if it is even a distinct region at all, has been a contested point throughout the 20th century. Today, the United States Census Bureau, which breaks the country into four regions, the North, the South, the West, and the Midwest, identifies Illinois, Indiana, Michigan, Ohio, Wisconsin, Iowa, Kansas, Minnesota, Missouri, Nebraska, North Dakota, and South Dakota as part of the Midwest. When the average American is asked to identify the Midwest, however, the exact borders are rarely consistent. Participants in this study, for example, identified all of these states as part of the Midwest with varying degrees of frequency. In lieu of clear boundaries, definitions of the Midwest and of its dialect often make use of more concretely defined regions, such as the South or New England, to decide what the Midwest is not instead of what it actually is. In other words, the Midwest starts where New England, the South, and the West end. In 1987, linguist Craig Carver used this argument to declare the Midland dialect non-existent, arguing that what is generally conceptualized as the Midland dialect is only a transition region between Southern and Northern dialects, and does not fit the criteria to be named a dialect in and of itself. While linguists remain divided, the popular view held by many, most Americans, as linguists Laura Hartley and Dennis Preston showed in their 1999 study on national dialect perception, is that the Midwest is the seat of general American, or, as some participants called it, Midwest bland, or boring Midwest. As David Marion Holman argues in his book comparing Southern and Midwestern regionalist writing, for example, while the South is the section most easily defined and accepted by the nation as region, the Midwest is the region that defines itself most as nation, and is accepted as such by other regions of the country. The South is a particular place. The Midwest is the heartland. Midwestern author Ruth Suckow, for whom Sinclair Lewis often advocated, makes this argument that the characteristic that most defines the Midwest is its Americanness. In Middle, Amer in middle Western literature, a lecture she gave at a creative writing conference at the University of Iowa in 1931. In this address, 
Suckow argues for the value and necessity in Midwestern literature, attempting to define and identify the quality, which she labels Middle Westishness, that makes the region distinct. Following the trend of defining the region in relation to other regions, Suckow concedes that the Midwest falls short in sheer obvious picturesqueness, romance, and color in comparison to the American Southwest, has none of the forlorn charm of the South, and cannot match the pure, stylized distinction of New England. Yet, what the Midwest does have, in her opinion, is authenticity. While this quality, compared to those with which she describes the other regions of the United States, feels particularly elusive and indistinct, Suckow goes on to clarify that authenticity in this case means being particularly American. Once again, using other regions as foils, Suckow argues that the Midwest has none of the urge to European imitation that New England and the West do, asserting that even the imitations found in the Midwest of New England architecture, for example, are more American than those found elsewhere around the country. This makes the Midwest, in her view, the solid center, the genuine interior of the United States. The author of Middletown, a study in contemporary American culture, apparently agreed with Suckow's assessment that the Midwest was the most representatively American region. In choosing a city for their study of the day-to-day -day life in a city as representative of, as possible of contemporary American life, the authors of the study, Robert and Helen Lind, decided on six desirable characteristics to look for, including a rapid rate of growth, a temperate climate, and industries using high-speed machine production. They also, however, added a final qualification, that the city should, if possible, be in that common denominator of America, the Middle West. They described the city ultimately selected as being in the east-north-central group of states, including Ohio, Illinois, Indiana, and Michigan, an imprecise geographical label that reinforces the nebulous geographical status of the Midwest. Lewis himself contributed to the ambiguity of Midwestern perception and representation. In order to establish the distinctly regional feel that characterizes his writing, Lewis sent most of his major novels in a fictional state, Winnemac, which he intended to be more Midwestern than any of the existing Midwestern states. To create his invented state, Lewis gathered data by visiting many Midwestern cities, including cities in Illinois, Wisconsin, Michigan, and Ohio, taking details from all to create his prototypical Midwestern city of Zenith, Winnemac's capital. Lewis's description of Zenith emphasizes the geographical vagueness that inevitably results from the mix and matched universality of this fictional state. While to George Babbitt, the protagonist of Babbitt, every street and building is, of, of Zenith is unique, the narrator notes that a stranger suddenly dropped into the business center of Zenith could not have told whether he was in a city in Oregon or Georgia, Ohio or Maine, Oklahoma or Manitoba. Babbitt himself sees similarities between Zenith and other cities of a similar size and composition around the country as a point of pride. In his speech to the Booster Club, he exults, there are many resemblances between Zenith and these other bergs, and I'm darn glad of it. The extraordinary, growing, insane standardization of stores, 
offices, streets, hotels, clothes, and newspapers throughout the United States shows how strong and enduring a type is ours. But while Lewis's first major novel, Main Street, takes its name from its setting, Lewis resisted naming his later books after locations, even as he was putting so much effort and research into crafting his fictional estate. When asked why he chose to name Babbitt after the story's main character, instead of Zenith, after the city that plays so large a role in the novel, Lewis insisted that the emphasis of this novel and the others set in Winnemac, which include Doddsworth, which is named after a prominent Zenith family, and Aerosmith, Gideon Plainish, and Elmer Gantry, likewise all named for their protagonists, was on the character types he was depicting, and not on the city, state, or region where their lives unfolded. He distinctly did not want the setting to be the main feature of these novels, as the idea of the small town and Main Street culture had become the focus of mainstream. This pushback against being associated so closely with the region that it dominates perceptions of one's fiction, while minor in Lewis's case, was not unusual, despite the success Midwestern authors continued to find during the 1920s and 1930s. While Lewis's modern reputation transcends his regional identity, so that he is considered an American author first and a Midwestern author second, for other regional writers, and particularly for female writers, this was not always the case, leading to a shift in how these authors relate to the Midwest in their fiction. Zona Gale, a Midwestern author from Portage, Wisconsin, is one such author. Gale made her name at the beginning of the 20th century with a series of stories about small-town Midwestern life, collected together and published in 1908 as Friendship Village. These were light, idealized tales of the day-to-day -day happenings of a rural Midwestern town that capitalized on the region's marketability. In her author's note introducing the collection, Gale plays on readers' sensibilities and emotions by extolling the virtues of a hometown writing that she commends the little real hometowns, their kindly, brooding companionship, their doors to an efficiency as intimate as that of fairy fingers. Most of the Friendship Village stories are told by a female first-person narrator who has just come to the town from some unnamed location, seemingly in the East. She seems to be escaping something from her past, although the stories never look too closely at what this might be and give all weighty topics a wide berth. And she is charmed and comforted by the friendliness and generosity of her new Midwestern neighbors. Although Friendship Village is clearly intended to be in the Midwest, the precise location is left undefined. The narrator herself repeatedly said that she had come to Friendship, Friendship Village chiefly to get away from everywhere, a phrase that suggests that the village itself is nowhere or at least at a remove from the world as we know it. Perhaps the best description comes from one of the town's kindliest, most hardworking and considerate citizens, who characterizes its lack of pretension by saying, this town is more like a back door than a front, or given it full credit, anyhow, it's no more in a side door with no vines. The narrator continues, for indeed, we are a kind of middle door to experience, minus the fuss of official arriving, and too, without the odd odors of kitchen savory beds, but having instead 
a serene side door existence, partaking of both electric bells and of neighbors with shawls pinned over their heads. In placing the town in this idealized middle zone, which has the best aspects of everything, Gale seems to be intentionally nodding to the nation's perception of the Midwest as an idealized middle region of the country, where the best features of the rest of the country come together to create the perfect American experience. Gale followed up Friendship Village with a similar collection of stories set in the same town, Friendship Village Love Stories, published in 1909. But, but although her 1923 novel, Miss Lulu Bet, is also set in the Midwest, it conveys a radically different impression of Midwestern hometowns. While Friendship Village and the stories set there glorify the homely, enveloping nature of the town a person has lived in for their entire life, Lulu Betts's hometown is stifling. As the not-too-old but no longer young sister of a married woman, Lulu is trapped in her sister's house, serving her sister's family without any space or say of her own. And contrary, contrary to Gail's claim in the author's note to Friendship Village, the small hometowns are places to be returned to. Lulu's victory at the end of the novel is represented through her departure from the town she has grown up in, making the suffocated, suffocating, repressive environment of the Midwestern town something to be escaped rather than vaunted. Moreover, even though Lulu accomplishes this escape at the end of the novel, Gail relentlessly emphasizes the difficulty of leaving. Lulu's train journey from her town to a small city over a f only a few towns over, for example, is depicted in painful detail, with Lulu making the journey, which takes place over the course of several pages, in only her slippers and a house dress, to her extreme embarrassment. In indicating that these small Midwestern towns are not quite the idyllic environments she makes them out to be in her earlier stories, Gill drops the regional speech that had peppered Friendship Village in favor of more standard literary speech. While the Friendship residents had all spoken in regional dialect that was often rendered phonetically, for example, one of the characters responds to an invitation from a fellow, fellow Friendship resident by saying, land, of course we'll all go. The characters in Miss Lulu Bet rarely speak with any regional markers, a linguistic decision that indicates Gail's attempted separation from her regionalist identity. Ruth Suckow, who praised the Middle Westishness quality of Midwestern liter regional literature, made a similar association between dialect and regionalism when she also eventually pushed back against her classification as a Midwestern regionalist author. Signs of this resistance to the regionalist label can be seen in Middle Western literature, even as the speech is primarily advocating for the value of Midwestern fiction. While arguing that every region has one particular quality that is its own and differentiates it from all others, Suckow nonetheless goes on to clarify, I have been emphasizing local significance because that was the limitation of my subject. I have not done so because I thought the particular Middle Western aspects of the books I mentioned was their chief significance. Without the fundamental universal quality, they would not be literature. Suckow's decision to describe the subject of local color in fiction as a limitation that necessarily curtailed the scope of her address echoes her own perception of the local colorist or regionalist labels that attach themselves to her throughout the course of her career. In resisting being classified in one category so strongly, 
Sekou seems to be aware of the risk associated with literary labels, in that, particularly for female writers, the label will affect readers' and critics' perception of the work of art. This seems to have been the case for Sekou, despite her repeated insistence that her work is universal, rather than regional. While her writing was frequently anthologized in the period between 1920 and 1950, when regionalism was critically respected, there was a dramatic decline in how often her fiction appeared in the second half of the 20th century, when regionalism had been dismissed as outdated and the Midwest had been supplanted by the South as the seat of quality regionalist writing. With this sense of regionalism as a limitation, Sukkow's relationship to the environment of her home state and her use of Midwestern dialect in local language becomes less straightforward. In A Homecoming, one of the stories collected in Iowa interiors, for example, Laura, the character who is experiencing the homecoming, is depressed by a visit by her childhood friend, Gertrude. The narrator tells us that Laura has spent the past few years traveling with her mother, and her return creates a stir in the small town. Gertrude, however, has spent her entire life in the small Midwestern town where the girls grew up, something Laura believes she can sense by simply looking at Gertrude. Gertrude was settled now, Suckow writes, continuing, it was in her air and the expression of her eyes. It was that she was no longer receptive. She was fixed. She expected nothing. Laura identifies what she senses in Gertrude as resulting from the fact that Gertrude, like Laura's mother and her mother's friends in Laura's childhood memories, is bounded by the world she spoke of, a statement that brings to mind Sekha's own status as a regionalist author, whose work was being pigeonholed into categories defined by her use of local details. She relates this geographical boundedness to stories specifically later that same paragraph, when Laura, still ruminating on the change she sees in Gertrude, remembers that when she and Gertrude were young, before, before Laura left and Gertrude became mired in the local, Gertrude's tales had been dramatic because she had not been quite absorbed. Despite their different circumstances, Laura and Gertrude exhibit similar speech patterns, with neither employing dialect or using regional speech. Nevertheless, there is an implication that while Laura will continue to speak as she does now, Gertrude, who has become tied to her region, will eventually begin to speak with more regional characteristics as her world becomes increasingly circumscribed. This is demonstrated by the fact that the character in the story whose street speech betrays the strongest dialect is also the character most trapped and confined by her surroundings. Almost every line spoken by the old lady in the Gothic house across the street from Laura's who has not ventured beyond her own front porch in years, is littered with dialectical markers. Scrutinizing Laura's house, the old lady ponders, No, I just wonder. Do you suppose she's going to stay? They ain't much baggage come. Wonder why she don't stay with the brother. In this story, then, dialect seems to be associated with a geographically circumscribed existence, suggesting that it, at this point in her career, Midwestern regionalism and the regional speech that had helped make it popular were as stifling and restrictive to Suckow as the more realistic, less idealized Midwestern towns she and Zona Gale had begun to depict. 
During the 20th century, Midwestern language and literature benefited from being conflated with American language and literature in general, an association that increased Midwestern writers' national popularity and led to a period of Midwestern literary dominance. The idea of the Midwest as a microcosm of the nation, which Midwestern authors, such as Sinclair Lewis, contributed to when they conveyed cultural universality by setting their stories in undefined and idealized Midwestern locations, while beneficial in increasing the region's relatability, also made the Midwest, in and of itself, indistinct in many Americans' minds. As the local color and regional speech that defined Midwestern fiction during the 1910s and 1920s ceased to carry the same literary value, however, some Midwestern authors, like Gail and Suckow, began to push back against the otherworldly, idealized representation of the region, narrowing the settings of their, of their stories and finally bringing Midwestern towns into sharp, critical focus. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this podcast from the Department of English Studies at Durham University. Now let us hear from you. Search for Read Research English at Durham on social media and discuss the latest research news, events and literary insights with our community of readers, thinkers and writers. Thank you.